welcome to Personal Landscapes. I'm your host, Brian Murdoch. You can find links for today's episode and other conversations on books about place at ryanmurdoch.com. David Thompson has been called the greatest practical land geographer the world has produced. He traveled some 90,000 kilometers across North America in the late 1700s and early 1800s as a fur trader and surveyor, mapping 4.9 million square kilometers of wilderness. That's about one-fifth of the continent. All of this while living off the land, surviving harsh winters, and managing a profitable trading post. His work was so accurate that it remained the basis of all maps of the West for almost a century. You'll hear about how he plotted those maps from a moving canoe in this podcast. A keen observer of the natural and human world, Thompson spoke at least four indigenous languages and made detailed notes about the customs, politics, and spiritual beliefs of the First Nations peoples who shared their stories with him on his journeys. He saw more of the interior of British North America and knew it better than any man of his time. His contemporary, the great explorer Alexander Mackenzie, remarked that Thompson did more in 10 months than he would have thought possible in two years. And yet, a decade after he died in poverty and obscurity in Montreal, his achievements were largely forgotten. Thompson's biographer, Darcy Jenish, joins me today to talk about this remarkable man's life and work. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Darcy, thanks very much for joining me today. Well, thank you for having me, Ryan. It's a pleasure. So a family member recommended your book, Epic Wanderer, to me a couple of years ago. And until then, I'd never heard of David Thompson, something that completely shocks me. Like, I can't believe we didn't learn about him in school, given his importance to the country and to its founding. Who was David Thompson and how did he end up in Canada? Well, that's a fascinating story. He was born in London, but his parents were Welsh. I mean, what little we know about them. And anyways, his father died and he was very, he was very young. And uh, he was in the Westminster Parish, I believe, and was sent to, the, I think they're called a Greycoat School. And he was there for seven years. So what would happen is every year around Christmas time or every other year, representatives of Hudson's Bay Company would come around to the Greycoat School and they would ask the masters to uh, give us two of your most promising students. They were looking for what they call writers. These were just young kids who could write, could read and write. So in that particular year, I guess it would have been Christmas 1783. Thompson would be 13 years old, going on 14. He'd been in school for seven years. And the, the masters of the school pointed out Thompson and another kid as the two most promising students. So they went home for Christmas holidays and the other kid uh, never came back because he wasn't going to get shipped out to Hudson Bay. Thompson went back and the following May, he's on board a ship uh, sent off to Hudson Bay to uh, a York factory, I believe, or, or Churchill House, whichever the one was way up north. I guess it was the further north Churchill uh, factory. So that was the start of it. I mean, he just got shipped over there at age 14 and was put in a trading post. And he was a what they called a writer. And he would just write down, he would keep track of the transactions. So that's how his life in the new world started. So was this a one-way journey? Did he ever go back to England? One way, yeah. He never did return to England. And and he doesn't tell us anything about his, I think he had one other bro- one brother. He doesn't tell us anything about his family back in in. Uh, 
London, whether they corresponded. It is one of the interesting things about Thompson, really uh, tells you that he was a man of a different age or era in which he was not interested in himself, he was interested in the world. And the world we live in today is selfies and Kardashians and all these crazy, you know, where people are just self-obsessed. But in his day, it was the work that was important. So he never told us anything about his family background and stuff. And, you know, and all through his, you know, these voluminous journals he ended up keeping once he got really plugged into the new world and found his vocation there. It doesn't tell us there's many questions that linger about things that we would be interested in. I, I wonder if that's because so much of the world was undiscovered at that point and now yes. you know, people obsess over themselves because everything seems known. <laughs> yeah, that could be. So it would probably help listeners if you could sketch out the world he found himself in. So what was Canada like at that time in 1784? Quebec, basically. Uh, uh, New France. British had just conquered. We were in the, the conquest era, just post-conquest. I mean, so you had the settlement in uh, the lower St. Lawrence Valley, and you were going to be start getting an influx of loyalists coming in. This is 1784, right after the American Revolution. That little bit of thin strip of settlement along the St. Lawrence and where it was going to begin to be a trickle around Lake Ontario, that would have been Canada and all the rest of it, everything from north to the Arctic Ocean and west to the Pacific was all the domain of our First Nations, all those dozens of First Nations. And the Hudson's Bay Company had a few trading posts along the west coast of Hudson Bay. The Hudson Bay Company was founded in 1670. They never went inland for the first century. They never started developing their network of inland posts. But that was starting to happen. You paint a fascinating picture in the book. You say that uh, white men operated at the margins of a world dominated by First Nations, uh, a world where rivers were the road to the interior. So the, the importance of the canoe to Canada can't be overstated. I mean, you often read criticisms of the new world, how, you know, they didn't invent something as obvious as the wheel, but it's, it was totally unsuitable to this geography. The canoe, however. That's certainly something I've never considered. I mean, although on the, the, the prairies and the Great Plains, the whole, you know, they now know as the Western sedimentary basin that goes from basically, you know, Beaufort Sea to the Gulf of Mexico, all that land, you could have used the wheel, but yeah for the most part, to get through the interior, the, the northern plains where you've got the boreal forest and uh, that definitely the, the canoe was the only way to, to travel. And uh, the waterways were, the, were definitely the highway into the interior throughout most of this period. For those interested in reading up on more about the canoe's importance to Canada, there's a, a really good book by Roy McGregor, Canoe Country. I read it quite recently. It's yes. amazing. The central role of this this means of transportation, like its materials have changed over the centuries from birch bark to, to wood to, you know, canvas, aluminum, uh, Kevlar, but uh, the, the, the basic design remains completely the same. That's, that's really astonishing. So travel by canoe at this time would involve journeys lasting something like eight weeks, you know, 700 kilometers, tracking up rivers with strong currents and rapids and uh, portages and hordes of mosquitoes. I mean, what was it like to travel the way Thompson traveled? Well, incredible, really. It's it's uh, incomprehensible in our era of uh, bug spray and, uh, you know, screens and everything. But as a youngster, probably in his teens, when he's first going inland uh, into the interior on these trading miss missions where they're taking their trade goods 
they'd have to haul their trade hundreds of pounds, maybe tons of trade goods up these rivers, across these lakes, through these bogs and swamps. What I found fascinating was, though, that they would be on the river at four o'clock in the morning until eight. They paddled for four hours before they stopped for breakfast. And then, you know, they'd go until almost sundown. I mean, it was a race to get up these rivers and you'd be doing it in the early spring as soon as you could get up river. And uh, yeah, you wonder about the bugs. I mean, how they coped with that. I mean, you know, there's a famous picture, like one of the few images we have of, of this sort of thing is the, is the work of the uh, artist Frances Ann Hopkins, who traveled with her husband uh, into the interior with the Hudson's Bay Company in the 1800s. But she has that famous picture of uh, now this would have been this wouldn't have been those northern canoes that uh, like the Hudson's Bay Company was going up to, up essentially up the Saskatchewan River system, which eventually drains into Hudson Bay. That's through the boreal forest and all that. The famous image of Francis Hopkins did was of, I think, what they called a canoe de maître, which is the master canoe, the big canoes that were going from uh, basically Montreal to the head of Superior with the trade goods. And so you can see this canoe that those things were 24, 26 feet long. And there's another four uh, f- uh, picture she painted of them going through the rapids. And there might be eight or 10 paddlers with a couple of tons of trade goods. And she's in the middle and her husband's in the middle. So these are the great big canoes that they because they were going up the Ottawa River at that this, you know, the Ottawa River, Madawaska into what now Lake Nipissing and down the French River into Georgian Bay. And then they got to go across Superior. This was that route there. So that was sort of uh, the St. Lawrence system, Great Lake system. But of course, the Hudson's Bay Company was parked on the bay and they would be going up these still very big rivers, but nothing like the St. Lawrence and you're not crossing the Great Lakes. But they'd be in smaller canoes. But yeah, you say that the travel in those days would be just by our standards, uh, superhuman, you know, extraordinary. Uh, that that portrait of that Francis Ann Hopkins painted of just a canoe overturned on the riverbank and men laying on blankets on a like a, a pebble beach. You're sleeping on stone with a blanket under you. Lord only knows if it rains, if mosquitoes. I mean, what what would it be like? It's uh, it's incomprehensible. And these are dangerous journeys as well. Well, and that's the thing. You know, Thompson had that horrible uh, injury. Uh, I believe it was at Cumberland House. And uh, when he was young, he was 16 or 17. It's not, you know, he, by then he was keeping journals, I think, but it wasn't uh, clear, entirely clear how that accident happened. But he took a fall and broke his femur, I believe. And they, and they thought he would die. They wanted to keep him at this trading post, but no, he insisted on being taken down river. And it took him a year to recover. He was laid up for a year. Uh, but that's when he had this fortuitous encounter with Philip Turner, who was the Hudson Bay Company astronomer, they called them, and he was the fellow who taught Thompson how to do celestial navigation. And so while he had that injury, he learned how to uh, determine uh, de- lat- degrees of latitude and longitude off, well, you do latitude off the sun, you do lat- longitude off the stars at night. And so Turner taught him how to do that. And that, of course, set his whole life in a totally different gave him another this other vocation almost of mapping where am i in this continent the broken femur is quite a quite a serious injury even today and to get well to give a sense of the the kind of conditions they were living on or living under uh, inland 
you talked about living in these you know uninsulated cabins where fuel was scarce. They would have two fires a day, uh, frost built up to four inches thick on the uh, on the walls of these wooden dwellings. And when not working, they had to go out and hunt for food. The wall of frost, I think, was on the first trading post. He was up uh, up on I think it was Churchill. I was something way up in the uh, up on the then shore of Hudson Bay. But yeah, this was, I mean, you had to have skills of survival. Thompson could, uh, you know, he could build a house, build a canoe, you know, mend your clothes, mend your gun. But yeah, you had to survive on what you could hunt. Well, of course, they had trade goods too. So they weren't entirely, they'd have tea, they'd have sugar. Uh, they'd have some of the stuff that they could acquire from the trading post and pemmican from the Plains Indians. Explain pemmican for people who don't know what that is. Oh, pemmican was a mix of buffalo meat dried buffalo meat and and fat and berries they dry berries that because uh out there in, on the prairies there were these well i used to grow up out there we used to call them saskatoons or their service berries and they're a they're a, a small blueberry blue colored berry quite seedy sort of like a blueberry uh but bigger and there was choke cherries which are these small round sour berries with a pit in them the indigenous people uh, of the day would prepare this pemmican, pound it into a mix and sewed into some sort of sack. I don't know whether uh, they'd be animal skins or something. They'd pack, and these would be like probably 50 or 100 pound sacks. And so this pemmican would be something that the uh, the indigenous peoples would trade with the fur traders. And, and so they'd be carrying some of this stuff as well. That was actually part of the, what fueled the fur trade was this pemmican. So and they would spend the entire winter inland at these posts. Oh, yeah. Yeah, these posts. Yeah. It would be pretty quiet because the, the indigenous peoples would be out trapping in the winter. They'd spend the winter in their winter camps and trapping beaver, muskrat, and whatever. You could also kill foxes, bear, whatever furs they could, they could acquire. And then they'd come in in the spring to trade at the posts. And that's why you see, so the the indigenous people are out in the winter. Uh, these these fur traders are just sitting around in their trading posts most of the winter, which would be six months, seven months of the year, probably. You know, and then in the spring, there'd be this big rush inland to get the trade goods up because the, the indigenous people are coming out of the woods and the trade goods are coming and this whole swap takes place. And there was two streams for this, as a, just to your reader or listeners who may be uh, international. So the two streams are they're coming from goods are coming in from Hudson's Bay up those rivers and they're the boreal forests there. This is the bogs, the swamps and lakes and just all kinds of terrain. And then the other stream would be up the from the St. Lawrence up the Ottawa River down uh, the French River into Georgian Bay across Superior. And, and then the well, the Northwest Company had their their inland terminal was on the, it was in two places, but basically the west end of Lake Superior. They'd have a big uh, inland complex there and they'd have to bring all these trade goods up in these major canoe, canoe, canoe de maître, which is a French term for the master canoes. These big 26, 26, 28 footers with paddled by eight guys and a couple tons of trade goods. Unloaded all there. And then the, um, smaller canoe the guys would come in down from the the plains they'd come down to, to uh, superior in with the furs 
So the furs would go back to Montreal, the trade goods would go inland to the posts. And that's how it worked. So what was the importance of the fur trade to Europe? I mean, why, to go, why go to so much trouble? The main thing was the felt. They used it in hats, basically. That's one part of it I didn't, I, you know, I, I have to confess, I'm not that up to date on what they, current, what they did with it. But I mean, in the early days, the felt hat was a big thing. It was a fashion trend in Europe. It was an underlayer of fur on a beaver that you could take out and weave into felt hats. And was one of the big drivers of the early fur trade. And, and the fur trade started, well, Hudson Bay Company was founded in 1670. So that tells you how far back we're going. And there was furs coming out before that. I mean, probably early 1600s there were furs coming out of Canada. So Thompson's getting in almost two centuries into this fur trade, end of the 18th century, into the 19th. It's remarkable that it was so well established by then, and yet they hadn't really penetrated the interior themselves. You know, they they would sit around in trading posts on the edges of Hudson Bay and let the furs come to them. That's what they did from 1670 until the late 1700s. And that's when the Northwest Company of Montreal was formed. And this was, so the Hudson's Bay Company was British. It was a British, London-based British entity. And uh, it was a company of adventurers trading into Hudson Bay. And they were, they had actually, they had been given a monopoly granted by the king. I guess it was Charles II in 1670 on all the waters flowing into Hudson Bay, which essentially meant all of present day uh, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba, and even Northern Ontario, you know, probably. 2 million square miles of land, all the rivers, they had a monopoly on all of that. Well, then these entrepreneurial Scots come along out of Montreal and they form the Northwest Company. They start this uh, St. Lawrence to Great Lakes route into the interior and and they're just violating this monopoly. And the Hudson's Bay Company could not enforce this monopoly. So they suddenly got competition. The North, these enterprising Scots built the first trading posts out on the started going into the interior, building posts in the interior, out onto you know present day Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, our western provinces, and that forced the Hudson's Bay Company to go inland to preserve their position, their prominence. And of course, the interesting thing is David Thompson started with the Hudson's Bay Company, and you were he was indentured. He was an indentured servant of the company for seven years. So from age fourteen till twenty one. I don't believe he was, he wasn't paid a wage. He At the end of each year, he would get a new pair of trousers and a couple of shirts. This is how they paid them. But when he learned how to do celestial navigation, instead of getting, ordering his two pairs of trousers or whatever, and new garments, he would order these books you needed, these references on, you know, position of stars and things. So he could do his celestial navigation. At some point he got, disillusioned with the Hudson's Bay Company because they weren't really interested in too much in exploration and map making and the things that were really starting to drive him. And so at some point he crossed the street and goes over and joins the Northwest Company. And this is kind of not something very many people would do, you know, especially he was British, you know, Welsh, British uh, origins. And these are Scots who are really using, and they're Scots and French Canadians, these, uh, you know, the French Canadian voyageurs, they call them. 
they'd be paddling canoes. And these are colorful characters. This is, again, the St. Lawrence trade. These are the guys who, I mean, they could paddle 60 strokes a minute, and they got these red, colorful red sashes they wore, and they'd have all these songs. They'd sing on the river all day. So he's going from this British-based organization culturally, structurally, over to this more entrepreneurial, dynamic Northwest company, which is owned by Scots and really driven by French-Canadian muscle. Yeah, you've described the competition between the two as a fight between an imperial and a colonial enterprise, between old and an old and a new way of organizing the business. And I found it interesting too that often these guys would meet in the interior, like their trading posts often weren't that far apart. So mm-hmm. you're spending the winter up there, you maybe borrow a cup of sugar from the guys next door and they began to to socialize. So while the companies were kind of at each other's throats, yeah. the, the traders themselves were quite often in a friendly competition, it seemed. Yeah, there'd have to be some uh, fraternizing and collegiality out there. I mean, again, like I said, uh, it's interesting. They were at the margins of the Aboriginal world. I mean, they were a very small minority in, in a world controlled by Indigenous people, and, and though they were competing tribes or nations, as they're now called. And so, yeah, I think there'd be a natural tendency to have some fraternization with fellow uh, Europeans, or and whether they were French or English or Scottish. And uh, it's interesting, back in those days, they would view those French, English, and Scottish, we would consider them nationalities today. They, re- If you look at early literature, even going into the late 19, 30, 20th century, they would, you know, refer to each other as different races. I mean, in Montreal, for instance, which was a city where you had uh, British as a dominant group, cultural group, followed by the Scots, the Irish, and then the French, they would all, they would regard each other as different races. So the British, the Scottish, the uh, French Canadian, and then there'd be some indigenous people hanging around. So it'd be a real in those days, multicultural group. And you're out there in the wilderness, you know, like 2,000 miles from anywhere, you might want to do a little friendly competition. This isn't going to get too cutthroat. So on those early journeys um, with the Hudson's Bay Company, it seemed like Thompson learned the basic skills of survival in this world. You know, he learned how to navigate the river, how to survive the winter, how to hunt and how to build shelter, as you were saying. In addition to being uh, an astonishingly... um, hardy traveler. He, he was also a great observer of Aboriginal cultures. You talked about in the book, an early meeting with an elder called Sakamapi, Sakamapi uh, near the Rocky Mountains. And he said, uh, the old man was delighted with his guest. He listened unusually well. He understood Cree. Sakamapi explained many native customs to him and spoke of politics and spirituality. And you said that Thompson would go on to speak at least four indigenous languages. And he compiled a number of dictionaries. So his journals are quite a quite an interesting treasure trove of observations of the native cultures at this time as well. Was it was he was he unusual in that and being so receptive and open to these cultures and curious? Well, you know, he's uh, we don't know what his peers in the trade, his white peers, thought of what their views were because they were we don't hear from them and they're probably mostly illiterate anyways. But it's a reflection of the, of the man's mind. I mean, he was definitely you know, just had this uh, renaissance sort of mind, uh, observing, listening. Uh, yeah, he and he acquired at least a working knowledge of Cree and Blackfoot. 
when he traveled amongst these different, and he, he encountered so many different uh, indigenous groups. I mean, you couldn't learn all their languages, but it was obviously, obviously a very useful thing to do. And, and the Cree and the Blackfoot were two dominant tri tribes or nations out on what we would now look at as Southern Saskatchewan and Alberta. They were two very dominant groups. There was a lot of marginal. So those are the languages he, he acquired, uh, he started to learn. And his encounter with Sakamap, he gives us an insight into, you know, this is in the 1780s or into the 1790s, but gives us an account of what was going on because he was a Cree living with Blackfoot, which was a very unusual situation because the Cree and the Blackfoot were perpetual enemies. And so, yeah, he was uh, incredibly open-minded and, and observant. I mean, he created a glossary of Mandan words and the Mandans were, a, a tribe that lived in what would now be North Dakota, and they built these uh, earthen mounds. They lived in these earthen kind of shelters. I mean, maybe sort of like a, a sod house type thing. They were actually wiped out, pretty much extinguished uh, in a small pot, one of the smallpox epidemics that swept up the Missouri River in the 1830s. Maybe one of those, there were multiple smallpox epidemics, but they were actually wiped out and almost, I think, extinguished. But he you know, he created a Mandan glossary. And of course, what, what was interesting, they spent a winter amongst the Mandan. And he was with a bunch of French Canadians who uh, traded all their, whatever they were acquiring. I think, I forget where they, they had certain things. They would traded their wages away for sex with the women and went home broke. You know, they returned to their post with almost nothing, but they'd had a good winter. Whereas he went down there and, uh, he was more interested in the language and culture. And so, yeah, he was an incredible observer. I mean, there's a one story about where, and this was again, when they were in the Northern Boreal Forest and they, in, in sort of the Hudson Bay lowlands probably, and uh, which would be in kind of Northern, way up in Northern Ontario today or Manitoba, but they encountered this vast, vast herds of migrating uh, caribou and trying to estimate, they were they were tied up. They couldn't cross this. They couldn't advance for two days because these two herds and they were with this indigenous these indigenous uh, an indigenous observer figured you know, gave them the sort of parameters for figuring out how many animals were. But these herds were a hundred yards wide, and they figured one was 120 miles long, and the next day one similar breadth and 60 miles long went this went through this river. And they, he estimated based on, on what the indigenous people told him that would be like over 3 million animals in that herd. And so, yeah, he was, you know, so his mind just went way beyond. This is the other thing. He's got to run a trade. He's really out there to run a profitable business on behalf of first, when he's, when he's in charge of a post or in charge of a group, he'd be the leader of a, of a crew that's got to go off somewhere, get sent here to do this or sent you know, somewhere else to do that. He's actually got to produce a profit for his corporate masters in London or Montreal. And so, you know, you got to, he's got to have a, an eye on the bottom line. Always, this has to be a profitable enterprise for these people he's working for. And, at, but at the same time, his mind is off recording all this other fascinating stuff about that world, the sort of contact uh, era, you know, when before you know western civilization really 
came down on on that part of the world. So he gives us, and he's observing that. So it's, you know, his journals and, and the things he observed are really a priceless record of, of, a, of the you know, pre-contact or just the contact era when that world is still kind of in its natural state. So you can have these enormous, vast, I mean, incomprehensibly large herds of caribou. And, uh, you know, he sees these beaver dams that are, you know, a mile long, creating vast lakes and things. And he records all this. So, yeah, he had, a, and then the other thing that was fascinating was um, this expedition they made in, I think it was the early 1800s, just after the turn of the century. This is when he's going further west and he's got to get over the mountains because the north, they just kept pursuing furs further and further west and further and further north. And eventually they, they start, the resources start to get trapped out you know, on the, well, the, they didn't have a lot of them on the prairies anyways, but in the boreal forest. The next they got to go over the mountains. So he's going up the Red Deer River, which is a major tributary of the Saskatchewan River system, and which eventually all lands in Hudson Bay. But, but he's camped out there for the night, and he's noticing how this valley is quite wide. The stream today is at most 200 yards wide, the Red Deer River. It's still a big discharge from the mountains. Heavy snowfall comes out of there. But he also notices that on the way up, you know, 50 or 100 feet above the, the valley bottom, there's enormous tree, trees that were tossed up there by a rampaging river in a not so distant past. And so he's speculating on why there's less uh, runoff, why there's less rain coming over the mountains. And he's speculating about changes in climatic conditions you know he didn't use climate or climate change but obviously when you've got a river that he can see was once this river was once probably 500 yards wide now it's reduced to 200 yards wide and at its margins up on the, the benches of the valley there's these big great big trees were thrust up there so he's he realizes that this river was much larger in the not too distant past so he's speculating on what caused this change. So this river is much smaller than it once was. And not so. so again, this is after a day of trekking up a river valley with this group of a couple of indigenous guides, an indigenous guide and, a, and maybe four or five of his fellow traders and another indigenous man. And, you know, you can figure you're probably pretty exhausted at the end of the day. All you want to do is zonk out. But he's got time to, you know, he would record he, had, he kept these daily journals, so he'd record stuff every single day. So when I was doing the book, I mean, I spent, you know, many, many hours at the, they were all kept at the Archive of Ontario on microfilm. These were these like leather bound journals, I think you call it moleskin, because they had that, those spots on it, or, you know, they were kind of mottled, I guess. They actually brought one, the archivist brought one out one day just to show me the actual artifact, how he managed to preserve these things. Like whether he couldn't, like he had, a, I think he ended up with over 90 of these, these journals. And I don't know whether, see, he doesn't tell us stuff like that, you know, whether he kept them with him all the time. One accident, his, these records could be lost. The world that Sakamapi describes and the world that Thompson uh, brings brings down to us today, the the indigenous world in in Canada, it's very different from the Rousseau-like projections that we tend to cast on the past. You know, of this era, this civilization that was um, one of peace and harmony with nature until until the evil colonialists came in and destroyed everything. But Sakamapi talks about um, wars between his group and a frontier tribe called the Snakes, who lived on the Great Plains, and 
because they were on the frontier, they were the first to get horses. So they soon used them to raid their neighbors. Like anything that came in from the Europeans, the dominant tribes in the area were just using these against their immediate neighbors to wage war on them, just as the, the same sorts of things that were happening in Europe. This, it, I thought that was really interesting. It's a very different picture than what we tend to project back onto these places. Well, there was, yeah, there was steady conflict uh, over resources and hunting grounds and trapping grounds. And yeah, and of course, the, the horse made its way north from Mexico, the, the Spanish down in southwestern United States. It just went from tribe to tribe to tribe. And for the northern tribes, the northern plains, uh, the Blackfoot, the Cree, who are the two dominant players on what, what would be the Canadian prairies today. You know, they had guns came in from the Hudson's Bay and from the north and from the St. Lawrence route. So the guns came in, the horses came in. And suddenly the whole culture, the whole indigenous world is just absolutely transformed. You know, they're mobile. They're not, you're not pedestrian anymore. You're mobile. You can hunt more efficiently and effectively. So, of course, you can build bigger teepees and lodges and things. And then their material world changed uh, entirely. But, yeah, there was conflict uh, all the time. And, yeah, if you had horses and guns and your neighbors didn't, well, kind of sucked to be them. They were societies where there was violence. I mean, a lot of violence. And, I mean... It was a lot of violence all over the world back in the day. So it was, it was just it was just the way it was. I mean, Europe at the same time was horrendous for its wars and cruelties. And uh, and it, it was the same out there. I mean, uh, you think with all that land and so few people, everybody could live in peace and harmony. But for some reason, it just never seemed to be possible. Yeah, human nature, it seems, is, is the same, it's the same everywhere. Another interesting thing about Thompson's um, relations with with the Native Canadians you said that even even though his uh, he was tasked with making money for the company and and ensuring uh, its profits, he refused to trade alcohol for fur provisions or um, guiding services. Mm-hmm. This was quite unusual, was it not? Certainly, there were people who would trade alcohol, and you know the things that happened were just horrible. As far as we can tell, he behaved honorably and ethically in. In his life, he and he was a very Christian person. I mean, his journal is filled with references to divine providence and hoping that you know, relying on God to get me through this journey. So he was a mass, you know, he was a Christian, spiritual. I mean, obviously there were no churches out there, no Sunday services, but somehow or other he retained his Christian morality. He refused to trade whiskey to the Indians because he saw the horrible things that that it did to them. I mean, the other thing that suggests that shows you the kind of ethical side of Thompson's character and his moral side was, you know, he took a country wife, Charlotte Small, who was Métis. And uh, now it's going to seem very strange in our eyes, but I think Charlotte was 13 turning 14 and he was 27. And Charlotte was Métis. So she was the daughter of a fur trader and an indigenous wife. And as was typical in those days, uh, these fur traders would take a country wife and, uh, you know, produce their offspring. And then when they decided to leave the trade, it was bye bye, honey. I'm going back. To, I'm not, I can't take an Indian woman back to civilization. This would be shocking. Thompson married uh, Charlotte Small. They had five children when he, he left the West in 1812 to go back to go to Montreal or go to. Yeah, he went to basically Montreal area. He took Charlotte and their five children with him. And they had an enduring relationship. Uh, you know, they died a month apart in 1857. And at the end of the days, would sit out at, at night holding hands and looking at the stars. 
Well, I read somewhere that they had, at the time of uh, his death, they had been married for 57 years, which was then the longest known uh, marriage in Canada pre-Confederation. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, they and they did have a Christian wedding, we got back to civilization. But when we took a, a country wife, you know, she became his lifetime partner. You said earlier that in December of 1788, he seriously fractures his tibia, and he's forced to spend the winter at Cumberland House. And this is where he uh, encounters Philip Turner, the great uh, inland surveyor of the Hudson's Bay Company, who teaches him to use the sextant, the telescope, the thermometer, and and the tools of um, navigation and map making. This became his uh, perhaps his greatest accomplishment, even beyond these astonishing travels, was uh, Thompson's abilities as a map maker. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, he so he would do his observations, and it must have, he would have to do uh, for latitude during the day, like midday, I think, because you use this sextant. It's the angle of the sun above the horizon tells you roughly what latitude you're at. But observing for longitude was much more difficult, and based on uh, nocturnal observation of the stars and the movement of the movement and position of the stars in the sky and when he was traveling all these rivers every time he stopped you know midday and at night he'd, he'd make his observations and record them in his journals and that would give you like uh kind of dots on a landscape you know i was here this day that you know you'd know you were kind of up here down there but when he was traveling by canoe he would be in the canoe and he'd have to have his journals open and he'd have to have a compass and a timepiece in front of him because these are these, uh, what do we call them, a tracking survey. So his journals are full of these, like the lines, and I quote some of them in the book just for example, but he'd be estimating the speed at which the, the water's moving. And then he would say, we went, say, 15 minutes northwest. 20 minutes southeast. So between those dots on a, on a landscape, he had to actually chart the river, which these tracking surveys, and he kept track of how far they traveled, in what direction. And this would go on for, you know, they covered dozens of miles in a day with all of these turns, you know, the, all these turns in the river. He would track all those changes of direction of the river and estimate roughly how far they had gone in a certain direction based on his estimated speed of the water that the water was flowing. It's absolutely incredible. I mean, in case people don't don't realize how how astonishing that is, I mean, these are blank spots on the map in many cases. Like this is just an empty piece of paper with dots on it. And he's observing, sitting in the center of a canoe in a turbulent river, recording exactly how long they went down before the, before the river twists and turns. And then it would be months later often before he would have a chance to sit down with chart paper and actually draw the map. He'd have his dots where that was at this latitude and that longitude. And, and then over here, whatever, at this latitude and that longitude. And he'd have all those bends and turns and meanders of a river in between filled in just as he's quarter mile northeast and half a mile northwest, half a mile south, you know, that all these changes of directions. Then years later, in the period 1812 to 1814, when he's back in what we now call Quebec, he's, he's living outside Montreal, he starts to work on all of these surveys he's done, and he starts to chart them, on, put them on paper, and he creates his map. And it's the map of the Northwest Territory of the province of Canada. And if you want to think of the 
uh, side. It, so it goes from, it's got the west coast of Hudson's Bay. It's got Lake Superior mapped out because he had circumnavigated Lake Superior. And so Superior's on the map. And then he's got the, the, the line of the Rocky Mountains, which is kind of on a diagonal, if you like. It's going sort of uh, southeast corner of British Columbia and Alberta, going kind of northwest and northwest jagged up towards Alaska. So he's got those all just sketched in. And all those rivers flowing out of the Rockies, at least the Saskatchewan River uh, system, which is the North Saskatchewan, there's the Red Deer that flows, and then there's the Old Man River, and the Red Deer and the Old Man come together to form the South Saskatchewan, and the South Saskatchewan makes its way northeast to hook up with the North Saskatchewan, and becomes the Saskatchewan River, and that flows down into the north end of Lake Winnipeg, and then there's those rivers that go from Winnipeg down to Hudson's Bay. He's got all of that in this map based on almost entirely on his own surveys, these observations of latitude and longitude and those tracking surveys. And then he's got the Columbia River. And the Columbia River, everybody thought there had to be a river flowing out of the Rocky Mountains down to the Pacific, which was, it just became uh, colloquial or apocryphal as the, the, um, the Great River of the West. Everybody figured there had to be some river that could take you down to the Pacific and you could start moving, sending first to Asia. And so the river, it's probably the Great River of the West wound up being the Columbia, which starts in southeastern British Columbia today, just a few miles north of the uh, American border, flows north for 100 miles, 200 miles or so. Then it makes a big, sharp turn, a 180, and comes down towards the U.S. border and then crosses the 49th parallel and then starts to meander through Washington state and then down. It finally makes its run to the Pacific. It forms a border between present-day Washington state and Oregon. Well, Thompson was the first man, and he did it in segments. He discovered the headwaters of Columbia River. And the Columbia River is 1,200 miles long. And he was the first person to travel that whole river by, uh, you know, paddle that whole river. He went up and down in different times. And again, charting its, its path and, and, and has that on his map too. So the map goes from Hudson Bay to Astoria, Oregon today. It exits the... Um, you know, makes it, it's the mouth of the river is, is at Astoria, Oregon, right? You know, it's the boundary between Oregon and Washington state. So when he's back in, uh, in Montreal, and he's back there, 1812, living in the Montreal area from 1812 to 1850, he, he makes his map of the Northwest territory of the province of Canada. And it's six feet, nine inches tall by 10 feet, four inches wide. It's 25 pieces of paper glued together. First copy he made was for CEO of the Northwest Company. They wanted it for their inland post at the West End of Lake Superior. So it was shipped up there and posted on the wall of the great hall, their big meeting banquet hall where they did all their business. And so these guys could come in from the interior and look at his mouth. That's where I was, I was up here, I was, you know. So anyway, he made several copies of the map. And when I was doing my research, they had a copy on display at the um, Archive of Ontario, which was in downtown Toronto. And you just walked in the front door and there was this big 
case on the wall and there was a black curtain over it and you pushed a button and the curtain came back and behind glass was the nap and it was sort of brown with with age but it was still incredible i mean sitting there looking at this thing it's like the size of the wall of my apartment practically is that still there today can you still see this map i don't know well they've moved they've relocated so I'm not sure whether you, they have it on display. I don't think they have it on display at the new location. Not at, they don't have it the way it was there. I mean, it was incredible. You could walk in there, push a button, and these curtains go back, and behind glass, here's David Thompson, one copy of David Thompson's map. Wow. And, you know, it's you're sitting there looking at it, you say, yep, that's exactly what Superior looks like. Yeah, I can see the west coast of Hudson Bay. And, I, you know, I've lived out west. I know those rivers just because I've, you know, and writing a book, I say, yeah, that is an accurate depiction. If I looked at a map today, if I held a map of of Canada today with all those features, just those features, I'd say, yeah, that looks darn close to what on this contemporary map. That's what's so remarkable about his work as well is I've read that his work was so accurate that it remained the basis of all maps of the West for almost a century. Yeah. You know, he had a lot of misfortune in his later life. He went bankrupt. He ended his life in poverty and obscurity. Nobody really knew about him. You know, you said at the outset, you never heard about him in high in school. Well, when he died in 1857, he was just unknown. He was obscure. Probably 10 or 15 years later, uh, the government of Canada, well, in 1869, 1867, you know, we have a Dominion of Canada form. Two years later, they acquired, they purchased from the Hudson's Bay Company what was known as Rupert's Land. All those lands that were where the Hudson's Bay Company had their monopoly, that would all those lands that were drained by Hudson Bay. They purchased that massive territory from the Hudson's Bay Company, without, of course, not an a wink or a nod to the indigenous peoples. So the government of the day has got this vast territory out there, which is now like Northern Ontario, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, the Rocky Mountains. They don't have a clue what, what it looks like, this new government we're down in Ottawa. So they start sending people, uh, the Geological Survey of Canada, they start sending people out there to start mapping. And there's this guy, J.B. Terrell, who's out, spends a couple summers out there. He's fresh out of university. He's creating maps of little parts of the world. He goes back to Ottawa to draw his map. Somebody says, well, there's already a map of the whole place. It's it's at the Department of Crown Lands in, in, uh, in Ontario. In Toronto, there's a whole map. Somebody's already done it. So he goes there and he finds this map. It's like mind-blowing. What? Here's a whole map. Who did this? This is like in, say, 18, the early 1870s. This guy, David Thompson. Who? Who's David Thompson? Oh, well, he's, he's got these journals. The Department of Crown Lands got 90 of his journals. And oh, yeah. And he wrote this narrative of his travels. Well, where is it? Has it ever been published? No. See, in 1845, when he was you know, living in poverty in Montreal, he started writing a narrative of his travels. Because a lot of other people have written them, you know, the more famous people. And a lot of people who've been out, a lot of these fur traders who go out for a couple of years, go back to England and then write their journals. And some of them sold all kinds of books. You know, they had big sellers. Earl Thompson was the master of the whole place, spent 28 years out there and knew the place better than anybody. So he wrote a journal. He wrote, he wrote a narrative. Well, it was never published. So this Terrell goes and says, well, where's the journal? And so 
it's, he starts to be discovered, you know, uh, you know, raised from obscurity in, in the decades following his, his death. And of course, his narrative wasn't published until 1916, in the middle of the World War One. So it's an astonishing story of a guy who was just a genius. I mean, this man obviously was a genius. You could not do what he did without having, you know, a, a mind, an IQ that's off the charts. But he died poor and obscure, and nobody ever would have known about him, except that he created this map and he wrote this this book, this narrative that was it was unpublished at, at the time of his death. And the other unfortunate thing was just because of the individual he was, he never sat for a portrait. You know, uh, Alexander McKenzie, famous portrait of Alexander McKenzie. You know, he was the first man to get to the Pacific and the Arctic. He was a Nor'wester, a, a member, a partner in the Northwest Company. Uh, I think we have images of Simon Fraser, who went down the Fraser River, which was another one of these incredibly wild, crazy rivers that exits at present day Vancouver, the Fraser River. So we have portraits of all kinds of these these guys, but no portrait of David Thompson. It's a real shame, really. And, and people have tried to create portraits based on descriptions of them. There's one in my book, which somebody did that, you know, there's been better ones done. Let's just put it that way. So basically he quits the Northwest uh, or he quits the Hudson's Bay Company to join the Northwest because he didn't want to be just a fur trade post manager. He wants to continue exploring. And then with them, he crosses the Rockies. He goes, he reaches the Pacific. He explores the uh, Columbia. He spends the winter west of the Rockies. And at that point, there's nothing left to explore. So he just, he just comes back. So he says uh, he was 41 years old. He spent, he had spent 28 years in the fur trade a wilderness traveler without equal who had traveled some 50,000 miles farther than any of his peers. People you mentioned, Alexander McKenzie, Simon Fraser, and Lewis and Clark as well. But when there's nothing left to explore, he just decides oh, time to pack it in. He goes back to Montreal. And for the first time in 26 years, he settles down in civilization and makes his map. It's really incredible. But the, this is not the last map he would draw. I, I wanted to, to bring this in as well. As part of the peace settlement from the War of 1812, uh, it included a survey that would delineate the border between the US and British Canada. So he was tasked with surveying and mapping um, the section of that border that runs between uh, down the center of the St. Lawrence uh, through the Great Lakes. And you write about this in your book. He was to start this mapping in 1817 at Fort Wellington in Prescott, Ontario, which is my hometown. Oh, really? Um, yeah, I spent an awful lot of summers hanging out at Fort Wellington before, you know, first and second grade. And he wrote uh, that the commander at Fort Wellington had no room for them, so they looked for private lodgings. A Prescott merchant offered them a vacant house and a supply of wood, but the place was so cold that they couldn't remove their greatcoats. So they had to hang out in a bar. So people back home will appreciate this. While waiting for bedding, they spent the days they spent their days uh, at the house and their nights at a place called Wilson's Tavern. And I asked them. Some ladies in the historical society back home, if uh, if they could, you know, where was this place? I'd never heard of it, but nobody seems to have been able to locate it. But uh, his descriptions of the town were quite interesting. From Thompson's journal, he wrote that the tavern keeper informed us that since we did not board there, he would not spare us beds. With much ado, we got two beds in a public house in a miserable room full of broken glass windows, stopped with rags and only thin blankets on the beds. So it sounds like an 1800s equivalent of the Dirty D without the strippers, basically. <laughs> exactly. So quite, a, quite a miserable description. Doing Prescott proud. Yeah. 
yeah, that was it. So that was the other great work of his life, uh, which the part his life in well upper and lower Canada, Quebec and Ontario today is not very well known or understood. That was part of a big part of my book was filled in that that gap. So after the War of eighteen twelve, Britain and America decided to survey a boundary between their possessions, and there were there were two parts of it. One went from the mouth of the St. Croix River, which, uh, you know, it drains into Bay of Fundy and comes, you know, zigzags through, uh, you know, states of Maine, province of New Brunswick, state of Vermont, Quebec, New York, and in Ontario. And that ended at a place called St. Regis, which is where the 45th parallel of latitude strikes the St. Lawrence. And then Thompson was the chief British surveyor. So you had you know, a British team and an American team, and they worked together. So they finished, they went to the upper St. Lawrence, across the Great Lakes, uh, Ontario, and all the Great Lakes, Ontario, Erie. Uh, They went up the Detroit River, St. Clair River, uh, up to like present day, the Sault Ste. Marie's, and then across, you know, Whitefish Bay, across Superior, all the way to Lake of the Woods. That took about 10 years, and he was there start to finish. Whereas the American side went through several chief surveyors. And so it was another epic piece of work. They'd had that horrible winter in Prescott, but they very soon, the family settled in this little place called Williamstown. They had a beautiful house there. In fact, the house is still there and it's open to the public. It's not exactly a museum, but if you're ever in the area or anybody else isn't. So that's back of Cornwall somewhere, isn't it? Well, it's, yeah, it's north of Cornwall. It's, uh, it's, it's in a bad, little kind of out-of-the-way place, but it was where a lot of, um, the reason why he was there was, for some reason, a lot of Nor'westers, when they retired from the fur trade, went out to this little place called Williamstown, and they settled there. So Thompson, so Thompson ended up in a beautiful home. I mean, this is a nice place. It's still a fascinating place today. And they were there from probably 1817 to 1836 when he went, he went bankrupt. And then that's when he and they still had several young children, he and Charlotte and their family, they went to Montreal and he did some, he was able to get some work that was reasonable for a number of years, but then he cut down to the point where he was having to survey building lots and just do, you know, just ham and eggs, nothing sort of surveys compared to this monumental work that he'd done, you know, out West and then on the boundary survey. Uh, but they ended up in a beautiful place, a beautiful little town that's still there is a beautiful, it's a village still, it was a village then, it's a village still. And Bethune Thompson House, it's called, uh, has been open to visitors for about 30 years. And uh, I've been there many times, stayed there. It's a remarkable house because, so the Thompsons were there, it was originally occupied by, I think it was the first Methodist or Presbyterian minister in Upper Canada, it was a um, John Bethune. He was a forefather of Norman Bethune, the Canadian doctor who was in communist China. Anyway, so he owned, his family owned the house first, and then the Thompsons bought it. And when he went bankrupt, it wound up being purchased by a family that owned a coal company in Montreal. They delivered coal to Montrealers. So that's what they did all winter. And in the summer, they just pastured their horses out there. They took their horses out to Williamstown to to the house and they just kept them out there as kind of a farm place. 
And it was in that family for 100 years, like 1836 to roughly the mid-1930s. And when they sold it, they turned it over to the, the, the couple who had managed the horses and lived out there, basically, an old farm couple. So, and then they had it from the mid-1930s until to the 1970s when they passed away. And so for that entire period, a century and a half for all intents and purposes, nobody did anything to the house. Like there's no renovations, no big alterations. So the Ontario Heritage Foundation acquired the property, leased it out, and the tenants then had to allow visitors come in and show the house. So if you went into the house, I was there in April, as a matter of fact, uh, the house is, you know, it looks much as it did when David Thompson and his family lived there for those 20 years. It's, it's a remarkable story of historical preservation. Anybody were in this area, in that area traveling around, uh, it'd be worthwhile trying to get yourself to Williamstown and have a look at this house. Yeah, I'll pop down there next time I'm home. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, the whole story, uh, it's just fascinating. So how, how did David Thompson help create the Canada that we know today? It's interesting. He calls it his map of the Northwest Territory of the province of Canada. Now, this map, he's making this first copies in 1813-14. And at that time, the province of Canada was basically contemporary Quebec and Ontario. But in the early 1800s, so Quebec has been settled for, you know, 200 years. So there's extensive settlement along the St. Lawrence Valley. You got Quebec City, you got Montreal, you got a number of settlements sprinkled along the St. Lawrence. And Ontario is really nothing but a smattering, or Upper Canada, nothing but a smattering of settlements, a towns, a few villages and farms being carved out of the wilderness. It's very, it's all just along the lake shore, you know, Ontario, North Shore of Lake Ontario, the North Shore of Lake Erie. It's largely loyalists who come up from, fled the American Revolution. And you're starting to get a few influx of settlers from, from England and uh, Scotland and that. That's the province of Canada. Legally, the, it was defined as, you know, province of Canada included, I don't know, up to Lake Superior and all that. But there's nobody up there. But David Thompson sees this whole vast territory that goes from Hudson's Bay to the Pacific. He says this is a territory of the province of Canada. Nobody else would have come up with that concept at the time because they just weren't thinking, you know, it was just inconceivable. It was beyond anybody's conception. And of course, he's doing this in 1814. Well, in 1869, the newly formed government of Canada, the Dominion of Canada, acquires all that land, and that's going to be part of Canada. So what he called the Northwest Territory of the province of Canada is finally annexed to the new Dominion of Canada you know, 50 some years later, more than 50. Uh, yeah, like 18, if you went to 1870, back to 1810, it'd be 60 years later. So he's expressing this concept of that all that British territory, it was called British North America, I guess, could really be seen as an extension of these two little smatterings of civilization along the St. Lawrence and at the Lake Ontario and Lake Erie. So he's kind of way ahead of his time in that regard the other interesting thing is that when uh i think it was uh president james polk remember there was a 
he got in a fight with the British because it was 54-40 or fight. He wanted to extend America latitude 54-40, 40 minutes north of latitude uh, 54, way north of the 49th parallel. You know, he thought that should all be American territory, probably so you'd have a land link with Alaska. And Britain wasn't going to go to war with that. Well, Thompson thought that, no, no, the border between British and American possessions should be the Columbia River, the natural border. So instead, they, the compromise was we'll run the 49th parallel right from the Rockies to the Pacific. It's a totally arbitrary, artificial border. Thompson was quite, this again was he was in his old age and seeing that, no, no, we were out there as fur traders at the same time as the Americans. We had a bigger presence on the Columbia River than the Americans. Therefore, everything north of the Columbia, the Columbia, the Columbia River should be the border, not 5440. And so they settled on just running the 49th parallel across the Pacific. So, yeah, anyways, uh, he, you know, there's just so many angles to the story that uh, you never run out of talking about. Yeah, it's just really remarkable, remarkable life and a remarkable story. But thanks very much for taking the time to share it with us today. I really recommend this book, Epic Wanderer. It's a fantastic read. Well, thank you. Anybody interested in travel would, uh, would really love to learn about this guy. He's one of the world's great travelers, without a doubt. The other problem with David Thompson is most of the great explorers, well, just before we sign off here, they make linear journeys, point A to point B and back. Lewis and Clark go from St. Louis to the Pacific and back. Alexander McKenzie goes to the Pacific, you know, near present day Tripper and back. That, you know, Columbus's journeys were from Spain to the New World and back. That is the classic exploration story. Thompson doesn't do that. He's all over. So he doesn't quite fit the pattern of a traditional, stereotypical explorer who captures our imagination in the way alexander mckenzie went down the a river to the beaufort sea and back you know franklin was going from england to the northwest passage and he hoped to go and come back but you know that's exploration is these linear journeys thompson is does not fit that template and therefore he's one of these figures who doesn't quite get the recognition he deserved yeah, rather than mapping just an individual river, he's mapped the connections between all of these rivers, this this vast network. That's really incredible. He mapped the whole darn thing. Yeah, this vast network, which is, you know, something that's way beyond what Lewis and Clark did. Way beyond. But that's such a shame that I never heard. I hope this is I hope this has changed by by now. It's a long time since I've been in school and it may have been my fault for not paying as much attention as I should have to uh, to yeah. the books rather than girls, but yeah. uh, well, that's the way it is when we're young. Anyways, thanks a lot, Ryan. Really appreciate you doing this great discussion. Thanks for listening to this episode of Personal Landscapes. If you like the podcast, please give it a rating on iTunes and subscribe through your favorite app. You can find links to today's podcast and more conversations on Books About Place at ryanvernorn.com. You'll also find a donate button if you'd like to contribute to the costs of the show. All donations are greatly appreciated.